een Maker District podcast. Queer Consent features discussion of sexual violence throughout. If you've experienced sexual violence, visit Centrum Sexuelgeveld or menaswell.nl for more information. My name is Thomas Garrett Puller. I'm 32. I use he, him pronouns. I'm originally British and for eight years I've lived in the Netherlands. And six years ago I was raped. I went to a popular nightclub in Amsterdam where I'd been the week before and I crossed a familiar face. It was only familiar because the week before he had wanted to have a threesome with me and another guy. I told him no, I wasn't interested. And this week I reminded him that I still wasn't, but I told him we could hang out and chat. And somehow I ended up at his house. Before we left the club, as it closed, I told him again that I didn't want to have sex with him, but I was okay to go for a drink on my way home. And as we arrived to his house, again, I told him. Yet, as we walked through the door to his apartment in West Amsterdam, he went straight to the kitchen. He returned, and before I knew what was happening, he drugged me. A syringe of GHB went into my mouth. I couldn't spit it out. Within minutes, I was on the floor of his lounge. And when I woke up, I was on his bed, being raped, without a condom. What are you doing? was the first thing I said. Don't make out I'm a rapist, he replied angrily. I told him, I'm not using any label, but I told you several times that I didn't want to have sex with you, and now I'm in your bed after passing out from the drugs you forced on me. He became angrier, and I became scared. Still drugged, I felt unable to move. Eventually I left, and after a time I started to talk about my experience. But rather than being believed, I was met with stigma and told that what happened to me was normal in the gay scene. This experience led me to launch the first organization in the Netherlands for male and queer survivors of sexual assault. Join me on this podcast as we uncover the journey I've been on, the journey the community is on, and the people who've allied themselves to this discussion. This is Queer Consent. Welcome to the first episode of Queer Consent. I'm Thomas Garrett Puller and I'm your host for the upcoming six episodes. In this series, we take a journey through an important period of my life, from my experience of sexual assault to the launching and building of the Men As Well Foundation, the Dutch organization for male and queer survivors of sexual assault. We'll take a look at where we are now with consent and what needs to be done to achieve a safe LGBTQIA community. Along the way, I've met some truly inspiring people that have helped me and the foundation create impact. Each episode, I'm accompanied with a few of them as we journey through important topics together. Our community has relatively high rates of sexual violence. In the Netherlands, 44% of bisexual women, 25% of gay and bisexual men, and 24% of lesbian women experience sexual violence each year. Rates for trans, intersex, and other groups are similarly high. Yet this violence is often unspoken about. Join me as we break this silence by talking to survivors, leading professionals and key queer community members in the Netherlands. Today we're talking about the importance of activism around sexual violence and delving into the needs of minority groups. I'm joined with Nina Sierich, co-founder of Men As Well and now social media manager and policy officer at the Safe Space Club and Sarah Decker Alawi, founder and CEO of Together We Rise and the Safe Space Club. Sarah is a member of the Lanzarote Committee at the Council of Europe and works with UN as an expert on adult survivors of child sexual assault. Before I introduce Sarah and Nina, I wanted to introduce to you a close friend of mine, Marco Mihailovic. We've known each other for around seven years. 
Marco worked at Civil Rights Defenders from 2016 in Serbia and was director of Belgrade Pride from 2019, including Europride Belgrade in 2022. Marco, it's really nice to have you uh, on the podcast. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Tom. It's a big pleasure for me. Maybe it's good to uh, explain how we know each other. Well, yeah, you and I actually shared a very important moment for, I guess, both of us. We met in Amsterdam through a mutual friend of ours who I met in Belgrade. And I was staying at his place. He had a lovely place near Vondelpark, I think it's called that. And one night, uh, actually one day, you came uh, to our friend's place and you told me what happened to you the previous night actually that you've had uh, unconsensual sex and you and I went on to have the a, a bit of a talk about it and it really affected me uh, quite profoundly but I guess that it affected you more and I just want to take this opportunity maybe it's a bit early but I really feel the I really feel the need to say that I'm so proud that you've used your trauma and made it into something productive and you are doing something for the greater good of our community which is vulnerable in so many ways and i think the biggest uh, one of the biggest issues for our community is a sense of shame and a sense of shame for the problems that we're facing that are uh, sometimes not our fault much like your situation, but I think it's so admirable that you grew from that situation, used it for the greater good. So I just needed to say that. So thank you, Tom. And I'm really grateful that we've grown to become friends. And I'm so happy that I've seen the progress that you're making and that what happened to you, which is really bad, did not break you it uh, made you stronger so just sending you lots of love and a great sense of pride for what you've accomplished and what you're yet to accomplish thank you marco you have a lot of experience in activism on stigmatized topics um namely in serbia with the lgbtqia plus community what does it look like to be uh, lgbt in serbia in 2023 24 um, Serbia is part of the Western Balkans, Southeastern Europe, one of the worst places in Europe when it comes to the recognition and the rights of the LGBTI plus community. And I was one of the very few people that had the privilege of having a loving and accepting family. I came out really, really early, uh, at least for Serbia. I came out at 15 to my parents and my friends and my school. And I was really lucky to have support, which is not that common. So that whole privileged situation that I've been living in, which is uncommon for most uh, queer people here, made me really want to fight and not just to, not just uh, to enjoy my privileges, but also to utilize them for the greater good, much like you did with your situation, which wasn't a privilege, which was something else. But I always felt this strong need of giving back <clears throat> and working for the greater good. So I've decided uh, to join Belgrade Pride. Belgrade Pride, um, the first Pride took place in 2001. Uh, we now remember it as the Bloody Pride because <clears throat> about a hundred people who were there for the Pride got beaten up by thousands of far-right extremists. Uh, the police didn't protect them. The videos are on, on YouTube, but it's very, very shocking. 
So that was the first one in 2001, which didn't really succeed. Then we had another attempt in 2004 that was uh, canceled. Uh, then we had uh, one state-sponsored one in 2010. It was very, very hard to watch it because it was about 500 people surrounded by 10,000 riot police officers. Uh, the whole city was on lockdown. And on the other side, there was uh, 10,000 hooligans who were causing riots, demolishing the city, uh, just trying to make the pride not happen which led to the pride happened they walked a little bit and then they got driven away by uh, armed uh, cars armed police cars but that led to the belgrade pride being banned in 2011 12 and 13 and even though the bans were deemed unconstitutional by the constitutional court of serbia they still went on and then in 2014 uh, we started having belgrade pride uh, which was peaceful but yet heavily secured um and then i i went there of course and then in 2016 was the first year that i was uh, working belgrade pride actually volunteering at that time and i really felt that there was a lot of space for improvement and there wasn't a lot of young people interested in, in participating or being a part of the organization and i felt there was a lot of things that we can do together to greatly improve it and I really gave my best for seven years. Uh, we we needed to focus on empowering the community, on uh, making pride, pride uh, to destigmatize the pride in Serbia because there's a lot of hate both towards the community and both towards uh, the pride itself. And we had quite a few successful years. But then uh, as uh, things sometimes develop, uh, things started scaling back, uh, which was really bizarre because, uh, for example, last year we had Euro Pride in Belgrade, which we won uh, the right to host Euro Pride in 2022. We won in 2019, and our whole bid was focused on empowering the community in the Western Balkans, which is facing a lack of legislative solutions, lack of legal remedies for civil partnerships, lack of recognition uh, of our dignity. And for example, in Serbia, we've had hate crime in our penal code uh, for 11 years now. It's been used only twice. So uh, both the police and the prosecutor are not really uh, focusing on the cases of hate towards the community. So most of the acts of aggression, both physical, verbal and any other type of discriminative or hateful conduct is being simply allowed. So the funny thing or actually the bizarre thing is that uh, since 2017, if I'm not mistaken, we've had a prime minister, which is an out lesbian woman. And at the beginning, we felt that we finally got an ally that we needed. But that relationship turned really sour when she didn't do anything for the community, except uh, she raised visibility, which came just by her being posted on that job. But her government didn't bring up any laws regarding same-sex unions or kids' adoption or the police started uh, heavily protecting the pride again, uh, which... When they say they protect us, it just means they prevent people from attending. And then finally, last year, uh, the Pri Euro Pride was banned. 
the level of uh, hateful disco- uh, discussions in the public were on the rise. The media became hostile again, and that led to a growth of number of uh, reported cases of violence, hate speech, and discrimination, which this government has no uh, desire to fix. From my perspective, uh, living in uh, Serbia, living in, outside of the EU, but still in Europe, living in a very poor country with a very low respect for human and any other kind of legal rights, I really think it's important uh, for people who live in countries which have a far more working government that you utilize all the opportunities that your countries uh, offer you. For example, what you're doing uh, with men as well is something that I think is really going to bring change because um, you're tackling an issue that's both stigmatized within greater society and the LGBTI community, but you're still doing it. If we were to do it in this country, we would face severe obstacles such as the government trying to prevent you from doing what you want to do is raising awareness and fighting for uh, better rights or visibility of uh, sexual misconduct. So I really think it's admirable that you're going on and I know that you're facing different challenges uh, from what we're facing here. But I strongly believe that uh, no matter where we geographically live or what passport we have, we're still one community that's historically misrepresented and um, historically been abused. And now we're trying to make it right. And there's so many things that we need to fix. But it's so beautiful when all of us work together and you came to your pride, you saw what it was and how it was. And it's I just really need to state this one more time. It's really admirable what you've achieved. I know that you've been having limited budgets and that you've been really pushing yourself and uh, your co- co-workers. Uh, so I really want to send a big uh, shout out to all of you. And I really want to send my love to the community in the Netherlands. I just want to... If anybody's if, to the people who are listening, I really want to want you to think about how we uh, from the Balkans uh, aspire to be like you, free, brave, and um, with access to uh, the uh, the government. So do everything you, that is in your power to utilize the opportunities that you have because they trickle down into uh, countries like mine. And we really need a good example. So, Tom, I really think what you're doing has a lot of potential to be beneficial over here as well. Thank you, Marco. It means so much to to hear that. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. After the assault, I was struck at the negative responses I received from many people. There was no one listening or that took it seriously. I was told, welcome to the gay scene by one person and by others that I'd misunderstood what had happened to me. Three years later, in the middle of COVID, Amnesty launched their Let's Talk About Yes campaign. The law on rape in the Netherlands had been criticized by the UN and there was a campaign to change it. But I didn't see myself in the campaign and as a sexual assault survivor I thought that law change should be fair for everyone. I contacted Amnesty to inquire if men would be included as victims and was put in touch with Nina Sierich. Nina, you were there right from the beginning of the Men As Well journey. Uh, and you're actually the official co-founder of Men As Well. You've been a really strong advocate for male survivors of sexual assault from the beginning. I'm so grateful to have you here today. So let's get started. Nina, what made you get into activism around sexual violence? I never really thought I would, actually. Um, but it was actually during COVID when I lost my job in the Horeca. I'm like, all oh, the restaurants closed. And I was at home and I didn't really know what to do. 
And I saw the campaign that Amnesty put on and I instantly got excited. I didn't know I was that passionate about the subject, but I know I've always been angry about all the limitations that were put on me because I was a woman, mm -hmm. um, not going out late at night, watching what I was wearing, all those sort of things. So yeah, when I came, when I came across the campaign on my Instagram feed, I immediately joined. And one of the things I noticed was that there were no men in the campaign or that they weren't really taken into account, not in like forming the solution to the problem and not as victims themselves. That's when they put me in touch with you. So when I was put in touch with you, actually, I was told that you had a special interest in men as survivors of sexual assault. And I remember from our first discussions, you also wanted to talk about women as perpetrators. What, what was it that brought you to that place? Well, I feel like if you only talk about women as victims, because of course there are so many women that are also victim of sex, victims of sexual violence, but if you only look at one specific group, you're not really solving the issue. You have to look at the issue as a whole. You have to solve the issue for everyone. If you only look at women when you're, for example, rewriting a law, what's going to happen to the people that aren't women? Are they still going to fall under the law? Is the law If the law is going to be written specifically for women, what does that mean for male victims? What does that mean for trans victims? So to me, it just didn't make any sense that we were just looking at one specific group And I was sure that there were so many other people that were also, there were also victims that were not included in the amnesty campaign. Yeah, I basically came to that conclusion because I just saw that there were just women in the amnesty campaign. Yeah, if you look at the numbers as well, it's like 43% of the abusers have been victims themselves. So simply by including men, mm -hmm. you for sure have some victims that they were left without any help without any acknowledgement, and then became perpetrators themselves. So. Yeah, and it takes such a long time for men in general to recognize their experience and disclose what happened to them. Mm -hmm. I think it's 20 years on average. So it really is something that we need to break a stigma behind, I think. Do you remember the original responses that we got from when, when we launched Men as well? Um, what the feedback I was? I do. I remember that we got a few DMs mm -hmm. straight away that people were so happy that someone was speaking out or that someone was talking about this. And to be honest, I didn't even realize that we were the only ones doing this. Mm -hmm. It didn't really click for me. But then when we saw the response and like the reactions of people, it felt really intense and really good, but also really sad literally two people with an Instagram page were the only ones that people could go to for this kind of advice or this, uh, for this issue. For sure, I think that a lot of people have throughout this journey told me, you know, not necessarily this happened to me or, or, or whatever, but they say that they see themselves in, in the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been, it's definitely been rewarding for me to see the positive responses of people finally feel heard. I do remember that there were some quite negative discussions that we had as, organ as an organization. I don't think you were in a specific meeting, but um, a few were quite difficult discussions and having to, yeah, whilst we were reaching out to organizations to ask what they were doing, I felt sometimes like I was running up against a brick wall. Oh, definitely. Whenever you were reaching out, because I remember like, you did more of the communication aspect and like lobbying and I was focused more on the Instagram page mm -hmm. and like the 
inside of the organization. And I remember you telling me how difficult it was to even get a conversation with someone that the first step was not to advocate for male victims. The first step was to tell people there are male victims and how that is an issue. And even for huge LGBT organizations, that was not something that they were willing to discuss. Mm -hmm. You really had to struggle to even like get a foot in the door and whether, and when you did, they would listen, but then they would be like, okay, great. Like you do, you you do that. That's exactly what I, yeah, Yeah. I, I really have, I really remember that I was told, okay, no one else is going to do this. You have mm-hmm. to do it, you know? And that spurred me on to to continue. Um, but it, it was, it's always With tough, no you know? As a, yeah, a lack, of, a lack of support, I think. I'm glad now that we see these organizations beginning to take this more on board. This is mm-hmm. definitely a progress. But it's been a lonely, a lonely journey in many respects, you know, as a survivor of assault, having to convince people of the importance of this topic it's uh it can be tricky it can be tricky sarah you have been a little ahead of men as well um the safe space club is uh, a couple of years older than the men as well what drove you to start your own initiative yeah so i think our stories are very similar so i've been a victim myself to me it happens when i was a child and i think just like a lot of survivors of sexual abuse it takes you a long time to talk about the things that are happened to you. So it, it took me over 20 years mm-hmm. to finally face what happened in my childhood. And then when I started to take the steps to get into healing and trauma therapy and all these things, I came across the fact there was so there was s- such a lack of knowledge about what sexual abuse actually entails and how it shows up in the day-to-day life of the survivors of sexual abuse. So I found that there was not a lot of knowledge about sexual abuse, what it entails, how it affects uh, its victims on a daily basis, but also that there were not a lot of places even to go to. And with knowledge, I mean, uh, of course, um, the impact of sexual abuse, but also the lack of knowledge was about what it entails to... Um, heal from it so the options for support were very limited and it was mainly focused on trauma therapy and cognitive therapy and of course that's very important it's not a step that you should um, not take I mean of course you have to do that but then you cannot cognitively heal from something that has physically affected you so um, the fact that there was no knowledge was in like multiple instances was very clear to me so that's why i decided to start uh, the safe space club I, I thought okay somebody needs to fill in this gap because uh, it took me so long to heal from this and the journey was so lonely and so hard and it was unnecessarily hard because i didn't have the information and my whole goal was to just it wasn't like to 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 provide healing the things that we're doing now my whole goal was to provide knowledge and information about what sexual abuse is and how you can heal from it and we did that just like you guys started by just opening a website and instagram and giving the knowledge but then of course it was spiraled spiraled right away (laughs) (laughs) it spiraled right away and it was even that way before uh, the whole me too in the netherlands Mm -hmm. uh but then after that there was it was crazy what is what is the approach of the safe space club 
So it's very trauma-informed and it's survivor-led. So to me, that's the most important thing. So we have uh, professionals. Uh, so we have therapists, psychologists, um, um, and social workers who have experienced sexual abuse themselves. Mm-hmm. And the way we operate is that we have defined all these steps that you need to take to heal from sexual abuse. And then we made multiple programs that you can attend um, to he- to actually make the first steps into healing. So we've seen like if if you just had experiences, these are the things that you need, the information, the way it works, the, um, the support, the tools. And then if you're steps like if you're if you did this part then it's probably you're gonna see these kinds of things that will start to come up in your life and then have a program that suits that part of the whole healing journey but also we've seen that people because there is such a big taboo to talk about sexual abuse um we've seen that a lot of people don't have a support system to talk about to talk about these kind of things so that's the thing that we offer as well a small community where there is no taboo about these things and we say all the things that you would like to say or that you were thinking but you don't have the means or the actual knowledge how to put it out so that's i think what's um yeah what's important that we do that's also something i struggled with the first couple of years you know it was almost i don't want to say victim blaming but I had the impression sometimes I was cast as an angry victim. Yeah. And that was absolutely not what I was setting out to do. I mean, of course, I had my own sexual trauma, but I've never stood up and said, I'm doing this so that I can get a prosecution from the person that raped me. My intention is to make my community safer because that was the most shocking part of my journey, that my community seemed immediately, suddenly to me, very unsafe. I had a traumatic experience when I reached out to, for support it wasn't there. And I understand where that came from because the knowledge of consent within the community is just so low. Education is heteronormative. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not taught how to navigate these environments that are very different to straight straight settings. And and really my motivation has always been I want to be part of a community that is safe. And until it's safe, we cannot say it's a safe space. Um, and so it's so important to yeah, to, for me to have had people supporting from outside of the community as well even when the community was struggling to understand what what the messaging was yeah to be supported by other survivors and other survivor-led organizations has really been but they didn't have knowledge of it because i think a lot of times uh, survivors of sexual abuse are being viewed as um vulnerable so i think it was very hard for people to see survivors who did not fit the bill and very empowered and then advocating for and then actually questioning the fact if I knew what I was talking about, you know? So it was very interesting process. And I think that it was, yeah, when I see, I think internationally it's more accepted to have a survivor-led organization. Also internationally, I think it's, the Netherlands is very hard, especially... Uh, within the, um, it's very hard to get your foot in the door anywhere else. So it's usually the big corporations, the big organizations that have a long-standing relationship, and I, I do believe that they're doing the best they can and they're doing excellent work. 
But I really think something is missing on the whole chain when it comes to mental health. And it's very, very difficult to get your foot in the door and be taken seriously as a victim. And that sometimes makes me really sad because it actually explains how they view victims. So victims are not empowered. Victims need to be empowered by something else or somebody else outside themselves. But that's the whole thing. Yeah. And if you look at, for instance, Me Too, where did that come from? The movement and the shift in the social norms has to come from voices of survivors. You know, that is when you look at all kind of social movements, the voices of survivors has been has been mandatory in, in terms of achieving social change. Uh, also because it helps build empathy. You yeah. know, and if mm-hmm. people can't empathize, it's... It's okay to tell them and talk about consent, but if it doesn't fit into their into a context that they understand, and that context needs to be shared from victims, yeah, then it's it's just gonna it's going over the head, you know. Yeah, and I I remember like especially the first couple of years because at some point I think after a year and a half I stopped giving these kinds of interviews and demanded the interviews to be different, but they only wanted to hear the sad story. So they contacted me and then said, "Oh, we heard you're doing something that's so good, but we also heard like you're a victim. Can you talk about that? Because we can never find any victims who want to talk." And and then I made very clear every time i said yeah we can do that but as long as you mention my organization and what we're doing and then there was not one interview that they didn't have to rewrite or uh to record or to um uh to 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 how do you call it to reshoot yeah reshoot or something because the focal point was always oh look at this little girl who had this terrible experience and also like doing interviews uh, or being on TV in talk shows, it was always first victim and then director of. Yeah. So it was very clear to me how they viewed us. And I was and I felt like um, even more necessary to do these these interviews even more often because I wanted actually to show all these um, survivors that have that are reading these articles that um, you can be something more than just a victim. Right. So, uh, and just getting that amended, having the people who, the press, um, having them to view me and victims in general in a, in a different light and portray us in a different light was a, a whole process by itself. Yeah, I think there's a lot of waiting behind this word victim as well, you know, and I'm always told, and if I'm t- talking in English, you know, oh, we don't, I've been told before at least, we don't use the word victim, we don't use survivor, we yeah. use people who've experienced. But for me, it's the actually the stigma behind the word victim. I mean, victim is an objective status that you become when somebody rapes you. Uh, and it's often confused with this kind of victim mentality. But there's nothing victim mentality about setting up an organization and trying to change something. And I think that when you really minimize the skill set of people you know my background is in corporate sales so i have run projects and i have set up open stores for fashion labels i'm perfectly able to run an organization and to diminish my capacity based on my experience which lasted 30 minutes i mean it was it's a life-changing experience but it's not life-changing to the extent that it mitigates everything else that you've ever been through and all of the skills and everything you've worked up 
Um, so I really feel like we need to begin to destigmatize the word victim because it's okay to be a victim and it does not mean that you are yeah as troubled as people think you are. So I I mean I know it's your podcast and you're asking the questions <laughs> but I have a question I can <laughs> ask one. Go ahead. <laughs> so like in an ideal world what would happen in 2024 when it comes to men as well mm -hmm. and the way you see things going and changing? From the beginning, we've worked really hard on um, helping restructure the landscape from an institutional perspective. And I said that uh, before as well. I'm quite convinced now that organizations are much more engaged and now we can begin to compel people to move forwards with sharing of their own stories. But in parallel to sharing stories of survivors, which is building empathy, uh, we need to be working to build better awareness of consent because when people leave the heteronormative education system at 18 uh, and they go to a gay bar for the first time or to a sauna or to a, cr a cruising club or to a cruising space, they are not taught how to navigate these spaces. So we need a lot more outreach. So the plan for 2024 is to provide outreach to the three largest cities in the Netherlands uh, and while uh, at the same time continue to train people uh, across the whole of the country. And that outreach, we can work with uh, sexual violence centers, we can work with LGBT organizations, we can work with uh, bars and clubs uh, from the queer community and really begin to build a much stronger awareness of this topic and act also therefore because we'll be working within three cities as a knowledge hub, which we can then share knowledge about the nuances from each city with other cities. In the Netherlands, people travel from Rotterdam to Amsterdam to go to a party. So we have to we have to understand that this is a very kind of mobile community that will go places to be able to have sexual encounters. And therefore we need to gradually and in a sustainable way build ourselves out nationally so that we can uh, touch more and more people. Uh, and that, that it's necessary to do that through through outreach and working really close grassroots approach with the community. So I, I do think that when it comes to doing your outreach work, I think this should be part actually of all these campaigns that are going on to more, um, I don't think normalize is the right word, but to be more open to um, the queer community, to yeah. the outside. So if you look at Paarse Vrijdag and all these kinds of things, we're advocating for this to be normalized, to have people being themselves, yeah. but then we're not giving them the tools. So I think it yeah. really, those two things, they need to go hand in hand. And I think these kinds of organizations need to, if you're one side advocating and campaigning for uh, equal rights, um, then of course it's going to be more visible and people will have the feeling like they can be more themselves and they will maybe even sooner than they would before go to these kinds of parties and clubs because they feel acknowledged, they feel seen, yeah. but then not giving them the tools, how to navigate these systems. I think it should be like, it, it, to me, it goes hand in hand. Hopefully in the next few years, survivor-led discussion will become the norm rather than the exception, I guess. Yeah. Nina Sirich and uh, Sarah Decker Alawi, it was really, really nice to have you both uh, for a very important chat. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having Thank us. <laughs> in the next episode, I'll be talking to Jeffrey Drahl and Tessel Tinsweger about their own books and experience of sexual violence and what it means to share your journey.
Een Maker District podcast.